Well, it's uh, really good to be with you guys again this week. My name's Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, This summer, if you've been with us at all, we've been going through a series called Jesus on Every Page, the Gospel in the Old Testament. And uh, throughout the summer, we've been taking a look at a bunch of Old Testament stories and and seeing that all of them, um, maybe you've heard them before, maybe you haven't heard them before, but whatever the case, all of them are ultimately pointing us towards Jesus and pointing us towards the Gospel. Last week, uh, we looked at the story of Rahab and in, in Joshua chapter 2 and saw that her story, we saw the gospel in her story, right? And that, and that it's by faith that God turns foreigners into family. It's by faith that God turns foreigners into family. And that's the truth of the gospel in Joshua chapter 2, a thousand years before Jesus would come. Rahab's story was part of the bigger story of God's deliverance of his people and their entrance into the promised land. And on the whole, the book of Joshua is really good news. On the whole, the book of Joshua is this really encouraging account of God's blessing of his people, his deliverance of his people, as they like obey him, as they follow him, as they walk with him. Uh, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows in Joshua. In fact, there's a lot of things that come up that just look like small compromises that the Israelites make in the book of Joshua. And they obey God mostly, but not fully. And throughout Joshua's leadership, there's lots of these small ways that it begins to compromise their allegiance to God. And what happens to the Israelites after Joshua's death can only be described as a continuous and repeating cycle of absolute and utter spiritual collapse. It is brutal. Those things that seemed like small compromises in Joshua, just little cracks in the drywall, they revealed, they're revealed in the book of Judges to be like foundation-level fractures. It was just a crack in the drywall that they saw in Joshua, but it's a foundation fracture. It's revealed in Judges. And the damage just keeps getting worse and worse over and over and over. God's people turn away from faith in God. They turn away from obedience in him. They start to worship other gods. They start to disregard God's law and his, and his rule. And they were supposed to be a light to the nations that God had sent them into, but they were just becoming just like everyone around them. And so God, as he promised he would, if they turned from him, God allowed them to be attacked, and he allowed them to be defeated, and he allowed them to be oppressed by neighboring people, showing them graciously in the process that without him, they are absolutely helpless and weak. Without his presence, without his blessing, they had nothing. And eventually what would happen over and over again is God's people would repent, and they'd cry out for help from God. And repeatedly, God answers their cries, and he raises up leaders throughout the book of Judges who he empowers to rescue his people. And that's the storyline of the book of Judges where our passage this morning is found. It's rebellion, oppression, a cry for help, and then deliverance. Loop over and over and over and over again. It's in that context, it's in that repeating cycle that we read the story of Samson in Judges chapter 16. It's really important to understand that because the story of Samson, I think a lot of times is seen as just about the story about his strength. But what I want us to see this morning is that Samson, Samson is, his story is really the the embodiment of the Israelite people as a whole. 
his story is the embodiment of the state of the Israelite people as a whole. As one commentator writes, he says, Samson's experiences, they're a paradigm for what happens to Israel when she fritters away her high calling, lives by what is right in her own, her own eyes, and provokes God to abandon her. So with that context in mind, let's read the passage and we'll pray. We'll see if we can't see Jesus on every page this morning. We're in Judges 16. Sometime later, this is talking about Samson, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sir, whose name was Delilah. And the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we could tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick of it to death. So he told her everything. No razor has been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out just as before and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, and they gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they sent him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines, they assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who (coughs) who has laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. And then Samson prayed to the Lord, Uh, Pray to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And then his brothers and his father and his whole family went down to get him, and they brought him back, and they buried him between Zorah and Eshetal in the tomb of the Manoah, his father. And Samson, he led Israel for 20 years. Let's pray. I thank so much for your word. We're so grateful that we would have it to study it. How we just long that you would show us more of yourself this morning as we study. God, fill me with your spirit, so I want to proclaim you and not myself in any way. God, I just like I just ask that you would make much of yourself this morning as we study your word. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, um, hopefully by this point in our series, um, you know that the story is not really about Samson and his flowing locks, right? But what do we do with this guy? What, what is his story really about? On one hand, he is a train wreck of a guy. And this is one chapter about him. There's three more. If you read Judges 13 through 15, you realize that this is just like the tip of the iceberg of the train wreck disaster that is Samson's life. One commentator writes this about the picture the author paints. He says, this man is ugly. Samson is disrespectful to his parents, callous towards his calling, without any loyalty to his own people, compromising in his ethic, rude to his wife, flippant with his tongue, driven by lust, lust, eroticism, and appetite. The only way in which good can come from this man is if God overpowers him by his spirit. Samson is a mess. Yet at the same time, God is with Samson. In our passage, it says the Lord left him, which means the Lord was with him. And in chapter 13, when it accords the miraculous nature of his birth, his birth is foretold by, by the angel of the Lord. So what do we do with Samson? I think historically people have taken two approaches. One, Samson is a hero to be praised. He's kind of a superhero, He's got scissors for kryptonite, but he's a superhero, right? And God uses Samson in mighty ways. We should find the good in Samson's story, and we should just kind of ignore the rest and and just see the good that's there. Or approach two, Samson is a flawed hero that should be rejected and scorned. His life is just a, a warning about the destructive power of sin, usually focused on lust. And, and the, the moral is, don't be like him. He's a, he's a bad example. Just reject him altogether. But I just, I just want to say this morning, neither of those things work. He can't be a hero to imitate. Even a skim of his story reveals character flaws so deep and pervasive, no parent would want their children to imitate him in any way. Not even his own parents are proud of him. But he can't just be a warning either because his story begins and ends with God's presence and God's empowerment. In Hebrews 11, he's listed as a hero of faith. So what do we do with Samson? He's not a hero to be praised. He's not a hero to be scorned. Both miss the point entirely. Samson is not the hero at all. God is. You see, just like every other story we've read this summer, every other story in the Bible, God is the hero. The point of the story is to reveal something about him. You see, the story of Samson isn't about Samson at all. It's not about his hair. It's not about his sin. It's not about his strength. The story of Samson is about God. It's about God's strength rescuing people who are blind to their own weakness. It's God's strength that's on display in the story of Samson. It's the strength of his power, in the strength of his control, of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, of the strength of God's faithfulness. And God's strength is made known through Samson, but not in the ways that you think. God's strength is not made known in Samson's strength and his victories. God's strength is made known in Samson's blindness and his weakness. You see, Judges 16, the story of Samson, it's not about him, it's about God. It's about God's strength 
rescuing people who are blind to their own weakness. As I said in the beginning, Samson is the embodiment of the state of God's people as a whole during the time of the judges. And I think one of the most accurate ways to describe Samson and God's people during this time is that they're blind. At the end of the story, Samson is physically blind, and it's only then that he begins to actually see. But it's God's rescue of his people in their blindness that makes his strength all the more. This morning, I want to show you three ways the passage shows Samson's blindness and God's strength. One, Samson was blind to the source of his strength. Samson was blind to the source of his strength. He was just as blind to the source of his strength as the Philistine rulers were. Verse 5, they offered Delilah a king's ransom, 11,000 shekels of silver between each of them. That is a massive amount. And they're trying to find out what is the secret of Samson's strength? How can we subdue him? And in verse 16, Samson um, tells her, because she has just nagged him to death and he cannot deal with it anymore. He says, I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from birth. But I just want to, the part that he has conveniently left out of that um, is that cutting his hair isn't the only part of being a Nazarite. The other two things that you commit to are never touching dead bodies and never drinking alcohol. And if there's two things we know about Samson, he touched a lot of dead bodies and he drank a lot of alcohol. In chapter uh, 14, the party before his wedding is literally translated as a week-long keg party. Like, literally, it is translated as a keg party, right? It is a massive drinking affair. In chapter 15, he literally kills a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. So when Samson says he's been dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth, you need to, he, what, he, what he should have included was a strong-ish at the end of that, Right? You see, Samson had no idea what the source of his strength was. He is not the most brilliant guy in history, but I am willing to bet he did not think he was actually telling Delilah the secret of his strength. He has not kept his Nazarite vows in any meaningful way for the entirety of his life. He's not lived as anyone who is dedicated to God. It is very clear the only thing that Samson is dedicated to is himself. That is abundantly clear throughout his story. By his own reasoning, if being a Nazarite was the source of his strength, man, he should have lost his strength a long time ago. And those compelling evidence, though, of his blindness to the source of his strength is found in verse 20. His hair is gone. Delilah wakes him up with this call to arms. And notice this. I want you to see this. When he gets up, the passage doesn't say that he didn't know his hair was gone. Because there's no way... You don't notice that. I can feel when I've gotten a haircut and I wait four-ish weeks. Imagine a dude who has never gotten a haircut in four decades. You notice it. It's not a surprise. Like, there's no way you don't notice that much difference. No, the passage doesn't say that he didn't know his hair was gone. It says he didn't know that the Lord had left him. You see, God's, God's presence was the source of Samson's power. And Samson was absolutely blind to it his whole life. 
It's only at his death in the very end that he becomes aware. Verse 28, he calls out to God and he says, God, strengthen me once more. He's finally realized where where strength comes from. It's from God giving it to him. Sadly, it took the removal of his eyes to open them to the truth that it was God's empowering presence that was the source of his great strength all along. And so Samson, at the end of his life, he had finally seen the source of his strength. But he died still being blind to the purpose of his strength. Samson's calling, we see in chapter 13 of, of, of Judges, was that he was to be a devoted instrument of God, set apart for God's glory and God's use of him to rescue his people. But Samson's life reveals that he was devoted only to his own glory. When he wins battles, get this, he literally writes songs and sings them about himself. Like he makes up little limericks and sings them after he wins battles that make him sound awesome. God's name is never mentioned in any of Samson's praises. Samson, he lives for his own glory. His strength is used for his own glory. It's not until his death, while the Philistines are singing the praises of their own gods, that Samson even acknowledges his strength is from God. You see, throughout the story of his life, Samson uses his strength for his own singular gain. He uses his strength to get whatever he wanted, whatever he saw, to get women or food or drink, to get victories over his enemies, or as the end of the passage shows us, to get revenge, a a huge theme of his life. I want you to see this. His prayer at the end, it's about him. He says, One commentator writes, although Samson is no longer driven by what he sees, his physical eyes continue to determine his actions. All he wants is personal vengeance. His prayer is, remember me, strengthen me, allow me to get revenge for my eyes. He's not concerned about God's people, and he is sure not concerned about God's name. And it's God's name, who's his reputation, who is tied to Samson's shameful state. Now, Samson's just concerned about himself. And I don't know about you, but I really wrestled this week with the ending of this story because it seems like God just empowers Samson's crap motives of revenge. Samson prays, God, give me strength so I can get revenge. And it seems like God answers that prayer i have to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time just like praying and wrestling with that because, man, that just feels wrong, doesn't it? In the end, I felt like God really gave me just some insight into what's going on here. You see, the story of Samson's birth begins with God telling his parents that Samson has been set apart for God, that he's going to be used for a special purpose. Samson's going to, verse uh, chapter 13, verse 4 says, Samson's going to begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. It's clear, however, that Samson doesn't take his calling seriously. One commentator writes, Samson's problem is not that he willfully violates his vows. He simply doesn't even take them seriously. Like his strength, it's a toy to be played with, not a calling to be fulfilled. I think it's easy to look at Samson's strength and and think that it's a sign of God's favor or God's blessing on him. We, We see God using people and we think, wow, God must be really pleased with them. 
But a careful reading of the story reveals that Samson never uses his strength for God, knowingly at least. Samson uses his strength for his own glory, his own good, never anyone else. There is not a single time where Samson's strength is used for anything but his own glory from his perspective. So why does Samson give God strength? Well, God gives Samson strength in order that to bring about his own will, even in Samson's utter blindness to the purpose of his strength. The strength of God is such that he doesn't just rescue people in spite of their weakness. God's strength is so great and so revealed in the story because God rescues them with their weakness. One commentator captured this really well when he said, the story of Samson is a fascinating study in the relationship between human freedom and divine sovereignty. It shows the Lord working all things together for the good of his people, even when they are least aware of it and despite the waywardness of the one he had even chosen to use. You see, throughout Samson's life, Samson uses his strength in ways that seem totally opposite to what God would want. But the author of Judges is overt and is clear that it's God who empowers Samson to do all these seemingly sketchy kinds of things. But the other thing that the author of Judges makes really clear is that Samson's intentions for his actions and God's intentions for Samson's actions are wildly different. As I studied and prayed this week, just asking God that he'd help me to understand what's going on there, I feel like I'd really brought to my heart uh, the story of Joseph and his brothers. If you remember, at the end of the story of Joseph, Joseph's brothers come to him. They're begging for forgiveness. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Your evil intentions, God actually used to bring about your own salvation. You see, it's God's strength. It's his sovereignty that's on display in Samson's blindness. God uses Samson's self-centered, jacked-up, revenge-driven motives to bring about his own good and the good of the rescue of God's people. God's not condoning Samson's motives just as he was not condoning Joseph's brother's actions. Instead, God was using their evil intentions to bring about his own purposes of good for his people. It's clear that although Samson was out of control, God certainly was not. See, Samson died blind to his calling and the purpose of his strength the closing remarks of, whole, of the whole of his story, they say, Samson, he, he killed more in his death than in his life. And I think a lot of times we look at that as like a compliment. It's not a compliment. It's, an, it's not intended to be a compliment. One commentator writes this. This man who had an, an unprecedentedly high calling with his extraordinary gifts, he had wasted his life. Indeed, he accomplished more for God dead than alive. It's not, it's not a compliment. It's just like sad and tragic words. So Samson was blind. He was blind to the source of his strength. He was blind to the purpose of his strength. And lastly, Samson was blind to his lack of strength and his need for rescue. You see, Samson was physically strong. There's no doubt about that. In chapter 15, they literally send 3,000 men to arrest him, and they're not sure that's enough. So Samson was physically strong. 
but in every other way he was weak. He is an incredibly flawed person. He is self-centered and egotistical. He is vengeful and murderous. He blindly pursues any passion he has for anything he wants. He wants a woman, he goes and gets her, no matter if God's forbid it or his parents do. He wants something to eat, he just goes and kills and eats it. He wants a good time, he throws a week-long keg party. Samson's strength had blinded him to his own weakness. You want to know why Samson told Delilah about his Nazarite vows? He told her because he never thought he was in any danger. That's exactly what Delilah and the Philistines wanted. You see, historians will tell you that the truly powerful empires of the world, they don't just conquer with cruelty. They seduce their enemies. They make them feel as though their conquering is actually a good thing. That's exactly what the Philistines did to the Israelites. The Philistines, get me wrong, they were an incredibly strong military power, but their true force lied in their tactics in blinding those who they conquered. They weren't cruel and vicious. Rather, they slowly assimilated their captives into their own culture and in so doing, just wiped them off the map completely. Within just a few decades, the Israelites would have lost everything that made them God's people. And what's so interesting in that cycle of judges that we talked about is that it changes in the story of Samson. The Israelites rebelled, and God allowed them to be conquered, but they never cry out for help. This time, they they don't even know that they need rescue. It's gotten so bad that even the one God uses to deliver his people doesn't even know he's delivering them. He doesn't even know that he needs delivering. Like the nation of Israel as a whole, Samson is blind to his own weakness and his own need for rescue, and we're just like him. We're just like Samson. We are just like the Israelites. With disheartening regularity, we reenact that cycle in judges of rebellion and and our need for rescue. Our hearts and our attentions are all too frequently drawn away from God by the things and the thinking of the world around us. We are blind to our own need for rescue. So often we're just seduced by the worship of idols that are all around us and the things that we are stealing away our love for God. We go on thinking that the passions we're pursuing and giving ourselves to that they'll bring life, but they never can and they never will. You see, like Samson, we're blind to the danger that is even around us. Samson thought the Philistines were the enemy. Nah. Samson's real enemy was himself. It was his own heart that loved himself more than he loved God. And like Samson and the Israelites, we're blind to the source of our strength. Like Samson, we're concerned far more with our own glory than we are with God's glory. We take credit all the time for the things that God does. Or we're so blind we don't even know it's him. Proverbs 16 says, a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You think the career you have, the family you have, you think the blessings that you have, you think it's yours, that you earned it, or that you deserve it, or that you've, you've made it for yourself. It's not you. It's God's abundant graciousness towards you in spite of yourself. Don't provoke him to abandon you in order to see that it's him. 
Samson and the Israelites were blind to the purpose of our strength. We're often unaware of our high calling as God's ambassadors, as his people sent to represent him. And like Samson, we just fritter our lives away. And we live for ourselves instead of for God. We live for the pursuit of our own passions and our own desires instead of God's. And what happens is they never really satisfy. They always left Samson longing for more. And they do the same for us. You see, Samson is the story of Israel embodied into the life of one man. But he's not just Israel's story. He's ours too. He's a reminder that we need God's strength to rescue us in our blindness. And the good news about the story of Samson is that that very truth is a crucial part of his story as well. Because Samson is not just a picture of God's blind and weak and wayward people. No, he's a foreshadowing as well of the one who would deliver them. In verse 31, the passage ends and it says, Samson led Israel for 20 years. In Hebrew, the word that for led there, it's actually the word judged. Samson judged Israel. And judges in Israel were not just people who were in some official position. It wasn't like a, a president or a king or one dies or one gets replaced and you have a next one. There wasn't always a judge. No, judges were saviors. Judges were deliverers. When Israel was on the brink of disaster, they were saved by judges, and every one of them, like Samson, was seriously flawed. And after every one of their rescues, the cycle just loops again. And it's the nature of these judges and of their temporary deliverance that underscores just two very important things. One, it was God that did the saving. Because, man, these people were way too messed up to be good on their own. And two, there needed to be an ultimate divine rescue from the source of their rebellion, not just the consequences of their rebellion. This is where it gets really good. You see, Samson's life, it sums up the message of Judges, but it points us past it. Samson points us to the strength of the ultimate Savior who would, on our blindness and our weakness, rescue and deliver us. One commentator writes this, The deliverers God mercifully raised up for the Israelites were flawed and temporary, but the ultimate deliverer, Jesus, he has no flaws. And so his rescue of those who believe in him is complete and it's everlasting. His deliverance extends beyond the rescue. Hear this. His deliverance extends beyond the rescue from the consequences of sin to the rescue from sin itself. Do you see him? It's Jesus on every page. You see, Samson, as God's appointed savior of his people, foreshadows Jesus, the ultimate savior. But in every way that Samson fails, Jesus succeeds. Samson only used his strength to accomplish his own will, but Jesus used his strength to do the will of the Father only. Samson's life was characterized by disregard for his calling, but Jesus' life was characterized by unwavering commitment. 
Samson, whose strength was fleeting, was valued beyond compare, 11,000 shekels of silver. But Jesus, whose strength was beyond compare, was betrayed for a fleeting gain of 30 pieces of silver. Samson needed to be humbled to see the source of his strength, but in humility, Philippians 2 says that Jesus laid his strength aside willingly. Samson was defeated and enslaved at his death, but Jesus offered his life willingly. There was no one who took it from him. Samson said, let me die with my enemies. Jesus said, let me die for my enemies. You see, Samson's death, it was motivated by revenge. His strength revealed his weakness. But Jesus' death was motivated for by it was motivated by forgiveness. In weakness, Jesus' strength is truly revealed. God turned his back on Samson because of Samson's sin, but God turned his back on Jesus because of ours. Because he took on our sin. You see, Samson was a blind savior. Ah, oh, but Jesus saw clearly. One commentator writes this, Jesus, the final judge and savior, is neither blind nor unwillingly bound. He who sees all and enables sight selflessly saves his people from blindness. In all this, he accomplished the work of the messianic servant to open eyes that are blind and set captives free. You see, in every way that Samson fails, Jesus succeeds. He is the ultimate judge. He is the perfect and unflawed Samson. The victory that Jesus wins on our behalf is greater than any victory Samson won on the behalf of his people. You see, Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death, and there is no greater enemy than that. And it's when we trust in his victory and we live in his strength that we are empowered to be wildly different people. You see, Jesus' strength changes everything because it's in his strength. When we rest in his strength, we live motivated by grace instead of guilt. See, the picture painted in Judges is the story of Samson, and, and throughout the Bible, is, it's not that God's people are made up of those who are morally right or those who are militarily powerful or those who are politically brilliant. No, they're made up of blind people who God rescued by his grace. I think many people think that the Bible is just a collection of moral fables, just stories that show us that God just blesses and saves those who live exemplary lives. Ah, but that's not the story of the Bible. Just read Samson. There's no way that could be the story. Tim Keller articulates it this way. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people who do not ask for it, who do not deserve it, and who aren't even grateful once they get it. In Romans 4, Paul says this. It's the ungodly who by faith trust God to make them right. It's them who are saved. You see, if there is a moral to be learned from Samson, it's that God's grace abounds to those who do not deserve it. 
Motivation by grace leads us towards humble dependence. And so we're enabled to live empowered by, secondly, empowered by God's strength instead of our own. Like Samson, Samson's physical strength, the only thing that matched his physical strength was the strength of his passions and his desires. That's it. Like Samson, we're never going to defeat our own desires and our own, with our own strength, no matter how strong we are. We need a power that is greater than our own. And in Jesus' death, we get God's Spirit living within us to live as Jesus did, to reject sin and live in light and in accordance with our calling. Something I read this week was just really helpful. He said, whenever we realize we have been invaded by the forces of sin, it's time once again to call on the righteous judge to provide the victory and life that we need. What happens is we see sin in our lives and we just start churning the wheels and trying to fix it ourselves. And what we need to do is we need to come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the true judge. You've already won victory for me. God, enable me to live in your victory. The key to to true strength is to acknowledge our weakness and rely on the one in whom real strength is found. The problem is that we often just think we're too weak. One pastor writes it this way, you can't be too weak, you can only be too hard. You cannot be too weak, you can only be too proud. You see, when you get humility that's connected with weakness, you will have more power than you could ever have hoped to overcome sin because you will have Jesus' power within you to do it. Lastly, Jesus' strength enables us to live for his glory and not our own. I can't tell you how freeing and life-giving that is. Samson thought that the true life and satisfaction was always fulfilled in the fulfillment of his desires and of his glory and his victories. But for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross doing what was hard, fulfilling his calling, and enabling us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him. You see, living for yourself is crushing you. And if you can't see that yet, then you're just as blind as Samson was. One pastor noted it this way. It's only when you see and believe what Jesus has done for you that you'll be able to live for him. Instead of saying, I want, you'll be able to have the strength to say, God, I want you more than I want anything else. You'll be able to say, instead of saying, I deserve this, you'll be able to say, God, I deserve death. And you gladly gave me life in Jesus. Instead of saying, my strengths and my talents and my abilities, they're about me, you'll be able to say, oh, Jesus, they're from you and they're for you. See, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And communion is a picture. It's a reminder for us about the gospel. And the bread is a reminder for us about Jesus' body that was broken for us as he lived the life we couldn't live. And and the juicer is a reminder for us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And the Bible is clear. Communion does not make you right with God. Instead, for those of you who by faith have trusted Jesus' strength to make you right with God, your remembering of the gospel through communion will be a joyful 
celebration of him. Remembering the incredible grace that you have been shown by the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior. It's King Jesus who's done it. And it's his grace and his strength that enable you to stand before him unashamed and full of joy. Every church logistically does communion differently here at River City. The bread and the juice are in the back and you just go and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice. And as we sing, as we worship, as we remember God and his strength, if you've put your hope in Jesus' strength to make you right with God, if you've trusted him alone to be your deliverer, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. But if you've not yet put your trust in his strength to make you right with God, then, then I just ask that you'd hold off on taking communion because it would just be a religious practice. And we don't want you to just do religious things. We want you to enjoy Jesus. So the invitation is not to go back and take the bread or take the juice. The invitation this morning is to take Jesus. And if this morning, by God's grace, you choose to put your trust in him and your hope in his strength to rescue you, then go take communion and do it as a joyful, life-giving celebration of all that he has done for you. Let it be celebration and worship unto him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus explained to his disciples how everything in the Old Testament from the book of Moses all the way through the prophets was about him. That includes Samson. Do you see him? Do you see Jesus on every page? We need Jesus on every page. We love him on every page. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the story of Samson and thanks for your abundant and just incredible grace. God, we come with hearts that are full of gratitude and thankfulness for all that you've done in spite of us and in our weakness and in our rebellion. God, thank you for the story of Joseph's brothers. God, who you save even through their evil actions. Thank you for the story of Samson, whose uh, death rescues the Israelites, even in his evil intentions. Thank you, God, that you use us despite all our flaws. God, I thank you most of all that all of that work reveals your strength and not ours. It points to you as the deliverer of the blind and of the weak, and it makes you incredible. And it gives us great joy to love and follow you, God. Amen.